Hello and welcome to the inaugural Graduate House podcast. Our very first guest today is Dr. Ken V. Lochnan, AO, President of the Graduate Union, International Vice President of Variety of the Children's Charity, Deputy Chair of the Victoria Police Corporate Advisory Board, former Managing Director and CEO of Telecom Australia's International Operations. Ken, the list just goes on. And not to forget, of course, you were a recipient of the Officer of the Order of Australia in June 1994. Ken, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me along. It's an absolute pleasure. Let's get straight into it and start from the beginning. Can you tell us a bit about where you grew up and society at the time? I certainly grew up in a in a in an era which is very different from today. Um, it was a society which um, ha- was very much made up of an Anglo-Saxon background, um, and it was also a, an era of certainty, so that people were employed in organisations for effectively a lifetime. Uh, from what we used to call cradle to grave. And it's interesting that um, when in the days when we used to look at people's applications for jobs, if they'd worked in a number of different jobs, that always placed a question mark about whether they were suitable for employment. But it's also an era where of innocence, I suppose, and today we see children being delivered, especially at primary school, by parents or relatives by car, taken to school and picked up from school. I grew up in an area where I went to three-year-old kindergarten and I used to go to kinder on my own on a bus. And so it was a very different era. It was an era where the dollar didn't float, the the dollar was set. It was an era where uh, very much a family-oriented era. Uh, It was before um, before the advent of television, for example, even black and white television. And I very well recall the Melbourne Olympic Games in 1956, which was the, uh, the, the activating point for the start of television wow. in Melbourne. Well, looking back now, um, what do you see to be some of the things that influenced you? Do you think these influences have impacted your life now? I guess um, I went through my life always being, as I say, thrown in the deep end of the swimming pool uh, and being forced to survive myself. So that um, a three-year-old kinder on the bus on my own, today people don't believe me when I say that that's what happened, but that forced me to be able to be uh, conscious of uh, my environment and my decision-making processes. All the way through um, my early days, I struggled at school. I was at a, I was at the wrong sort of a school, doing the wrong sort of subjects. I was very young. I would have been the equivalent of entering university at 15 years of age if I had gone straight through. So I was always fighting from behind. I was always trying to catch up, but never really catching up. So that taught me how to survive in a world that was quite difficult. School was very harsh. We we had corporal punishment at school, and. I was used to this my grandfather talking about all this nonsense when he was young. But we had corporal punishment at school, and if you couldn't remember your Latin vocabulary, you get the cuts. They, they, they'd hit you with a strap. So that forced me to always try to find other ways to do things, other ways to be acceptable. And I think that's something that's stayed with me all the way through my life. Um, but I do look now about the fact that it was it was an era so different um, from today 
that other people find it hard. My grandchildren find it very hard when I try to explain to them the difference between life when I was their age and what they experience today in their society with the facilities and attributes that they have. This is a very interesting point. Do you think that your behaviour at the time and, and your influences at the time have contributed to how you've approached the world of work? So. What was your first professional job and what did you learn from it? I think in terms of the first part of that question, the answer is yes, very much so. And it's been about achieving at all costs, almost. It's about uh, having come from behind. Um, when I go back to my old school now and talk to them and say that I failed Year 11 at school, I get a standing ovation from the Year 11 and Year 12 students. And I take them through how um, my learning experiences in those early years, having to, having to really struggle to survive, have really been important to me in my career as I moved forward. Yeah. My first job um, was as a clerk in the Postmaster General's department, and I worked in an environment which was what they called, was part of the engineering department, but it was really grassroots engineering stuff. So all of the other people working in that environment were probably in their late 50s and early 60s and I was 16 years old right. and so my first job was to get the lunches and to, to help out around the office but I learned a lot about respecting my fellow employees I learned a, because these people knew so much about things I knew nothing about I, I, I took the advantage the opportunity to try to learn from them and that's always been part of, of my ethos in working in any work environment. Okay, and is that, do you use that knowledge today in the work that you do now? Not specifically the knowledge, but certainly the principles. Um, but every now and then it is handy because you understand how things actually work in the engineering part of the telecommunications environment. So the people that you see out today leading optical fibre cable through underground, the Telstra people or their contractors doing that, I actually understand how they record that, how they know what cables are where and how all of the elements of the cable, how many people are hanging off the cable, how many people are using it. But we didn't worry so much those days about capacity of the network. All we knew was that everyone had a twisted pair, yeah. whereas today we, we move it down a, a common tube which carries a huge amount of data. And a great deal of your work has been in the corporate sector prior to Variety, the children's charity. And what have been some of your observations of corporate culture? Yes, the, the corporate culture is because I work in I've worked in the private sector and still do. Um, I work um, in the not-for-profit sector, and I also work in the government sector. And it's interesting to see the difference between each of those um, each, these, those parts of the economy. In the private sector, it's very much about performance. It's very much about setting objectives and setting targets and meeting those targets. It's about always about moving forward. It's about ways to find out how to do new things, how to create original situations, how to take strategic advantage. And in a lot of ways, my background actually suited me for that sort of work, to be able to think laterally. Okay, at school, I, I couldn't do my French vocab. I was having trouble with, with algebra. How, how was I able to get around that? How could I get around that? Was it by doing a lot more homework? Um, so a lot of those principles applied, I think, to what I did in the private sector. 
the government sector is again very different and that's that's very much about um, working within rules and regulations, working almost within silos. Government departments tend to work in silos. They tend not to take a whole of government approach. They tend to be controlled by rules and regulations about policies and procedures. There's a huge amount of work and effort goes into adherence to policies and procedures without actually having the, th the thought process about what am I actually doing and how does it relate to other people within my department or my other my organisation? Not-for-profits are different again uh, in terms of their approach because they, they're very much about a common focus, a goal, but involving a whole range of people and being able to interrelate to people, whether it's here at the Graduate Union, Melbourne University, whether it's down the other end of town at Victoria University with my involvement there, or whether it's my involvement with Variety domestically here in Australia and Variety on a global basis and through my work on the Variety International Board in Los Angeles. I mean, those are excellent insights, but what, what really spurred you to move towards the not-for-profit sector? I think um, I had a very good, a very good strong foundation first in, in the government environment in what was the Postmaster General's Department. But then I could see, I, I could consciously feel the constraints, the constraints on the, the, the energy and, and, the, and the enthusiasm I had for change, and that wasn't well accepted in the government sector. Mm. So when I had the opportunity to become involved in the private sector, I jumped at that opportunity. I had some disappointments, but I certainly had a lot of highs on the way through, being able to, to in, introduce some creative thinking some, some, to be able to do things that people haven't thought, well, we never thought about doing that way before, mm. and to make a real difference to achieving the objectives. That's what it's really about, it's making a difference. And Variety certainly does that. So what drew you towards Variety, the children's charity? This is a long story. I'll try and take it, take it very quickly. Okay. But I, I was uh, chairing the board of a, an organisation called the Skilled Group, which was the largest um, employer of contract labour in this country. It had about 55,000 people working for us, very big company. And I was at the board one day at a board meeting and the executive said to me, oh, the marketing manager's coming in to address the board. And I said, what about? They said, oh, you'll find out. I said, no, 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 no. The chairman needs to know what's this going to be. They said, well, it's about getting involved in a fun event. I said, oh, well, maybe I'm, I'm big into fun. Mm -hmm. So the marketing lady came in and she talked to us about uh, the organisation Skilled, having entered into an agreement with Variety, the children's charity, to sponsor what's called the Variety Bash. Now, I'd never really heard of Variety before, and but when she explained a little more that this meant that we had to go out and, and buy a car, a car had to be more than 30 years old, and uh, the company went out and bought a Volkswagen Beetle, and they decorated it up. The logo for the company was a hard hat, which sat on top of the Volkswagen Beetle, accentuated the lines of the Beetle. And, and she'd arranged for the directors to take it in turns to drive this amazing little car off-road between Melbourne and Cairns up through the back way. Wow. And so that was my introduction to variety. I did 11 variety bashes in my Volkswagen Beetle. And then I was invited to come into the management of Variety, okay. so I joined the board of Variety in Victoria, 
where I became the deputy chair, then the board of Variety Australia, where I became the chairman, and now as the international vice president on the board in Los Angeles. Absolutely amazing. You say you've been on 11 of these bashes. Can you tell us what they are? And if you've yeah, got any it's, it's a great and unique fundraising, which is, which is quite... Uh, no one else in the world except New Zealand does this. It started in Australia with one of our entrepreneurs called Dick Smith, and his idea was originally to get a couple of old cars and go out and have fun in the bush with your mates and raise a bit of money for kids. So uh, it started from that, and it's now a massive um, organisation uh, right around Australia. It's, it's, it's basically about taking old cars, more than 30 years old, preparing them for the outback. So you have to do work on the suspension, you have to have UHF, VHF radio systems, and you have to have effectively um, full harness um, seat belts, a lot of safety requirements and you drive across Australia in these old cars, but you do the fundraising before you go. Nice. And it, it, we raise um, about now in Australia, there's about 14 million Australian dollars raised net every year wow. for not just those bashes, but it's, it, it's moved out. We now have a Bratz bash where you can take your kids along on it okay. or your grandchildren along. We have a splash which, where people drive jet skis down the east coast of Australia. We have motorbike bashes, we have four-wheel drive bashes, we have five-star bashes, and it really is a lot of fun. I must just say that of all the things I've done in my life, doing a variety bash is probably the most exciting and unique thing you can do to see the most beautiful and remote parts of the Australian outback with a full support infrastructure. So we have breakdown crews, we have mobile workshops, we have, a, we have mobile intensive care ambulance, we have, we have the whole thing. We have a helicopter with us sometimes. And, and to be out in, in those very remote places, and, and places I would never, ever have the opportunity to go to with a bunch of people and, you know, in Victoria here, we had, at one stage, we had about 130 cars going out at once. Wow. So with all the support team, it was like moving a small village across Australia, yep. across the, the central desert, up the Tanami track, uh, to all sorts of places. And my little Volkswagen, <laughs> she's been everywhere. She's been everywhere? Does yeah. she have a name? She's Miss Skilly. Miss Skilly. Because Skilled were the sponsors, and uh, I checked for the number plate, and S-K-I-L-L-E was available. Okay. So I took that, and then alongside that on the bodywork was the, a big Miss, and she had beautiful white teeth, a lovely smile. She had eyelashes on the, on the driving yeah. headlights. She had long red plaits and she had a polka dot skirt on a running board. Beautiful. And just for equality, um, Skilled had their own Volkswagen, which was one I originally went, and that was Mr. Skilled. Okay. And I bought my own Volkswagen, Miss Skilly, and they went together on a bash up to Darwin, and at Catherine in the Northern Territory, they were married. And we had a wedding ceremony in the gardens at in Catherine, and the wedding ceremony was conducted by the mayor of Catherine. So the two Volkswagens were married. That's fantastic. It's all about fun. That's so much We put fun. the fun into fundraising. Absolutely. And you've worked away from Victorian Deputy Chair to Australian Chairperson and now to International Vice President. Going into the International Vice President role, what were your aspirations at the time? When I first joined the Australian Board, it was a, it was a, it was a non-functioning board. 
There were people who uh, weren't able to work as a team on the board. So the first thing I did was to restructure the Australian board, restructure our constitution, and to drive a cohesive team of people who are prepared to work together to, for kids. As part of that, and because I was the Australian chairman, I was entitled to a spot on the international board. But when I got to the international board, there were 38 people on the international board. I went in there really with the purpose to try to turn that board into an efficient functioning group of people. So today we only have 12 people on our board. Uh, they are all people who have significant expertise. We have a, a skills matrix mm -hmm. which we introduce um, and, and mem new members of the board need to fit with the skills matrix that we have as part of the objectives and strategy we have. Also, the organisation never had a proper strategy. We have one in place today. And it had become, the organisation had grown quickly from 1927 when it was founded um, through the, the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even the 60s. But then it started to stagnate. And some of the, the branches around the world, just because they weren't the right people, they lost interest and they closed. So I also saw the opportunity for us to embark on a more global program. So today, in the last 18 months, I've opened new branches in Hong Kong and Singapore, in Jakarta um, and, in, uh, and in Sri Lanka. And we've also revitalised our branch in Japan as part of our move away from being an Anglo-Saxon-based charity and taking the opportunity to help kids in other parts of the world, particularly in those developing countries that have got a new middle class with the opportunity for children to be supported by their, their own new middle class within their country. So we fundraise in country for kids in country. So that was really my motivation, yeah. was my experience and background gave me the wherewithal to be able to create that change. We did it successfully and there were some people who weren't happy, but the reality was that we're probably helping about 300,000 more children a year now than we were then. And, and now, what, what do you see to be your aspirations? I want to truly turn it into a, into a true global organisation. We have about 46 branches today, but only working in about 16 countries. I want to, my aspiration is to take variety to those parts of the world where there is genuine need. There's need for children everywhere in the world, especially in New Zealand, that 27% of all children in New Zealand are being brought up below the poverty line. Right. Um, in other parts of the world, of course, it's, it's, it's even much worse. But you know, we, have a, we have a branch in New York mm -hmm. that helps kids in New York, children in need of support within New York. Um, so I want to take the organisation, I want to reach out to 2 million children a year yeah. within five years. There's obviously a lot that goes on with strategy and with planning, with what you do. What, what's a day in the life of the International Vice President like? So the variety uh, activity is only one part of many activities that I have, mm -hmm. both in the private, the public and the not-profit sector. But a day in the life is, well, partly be, because variety is on a different, Australia is on a different time zone from a very large part of the rest of the world. The developing activities in Asia are a very similar timeline to us, but those in, in North America, those in Europe are, and the Middle East are in different time zones. So my day is usually a very long one because it starts early to fit with time zones in particular parts of the world and it finishes very late. To, to work in with other time zones in the world. But um, in between, it's a matter of, it's a matter of what, now we've got a strategy in place, it's a matter of driving. 
and it's like I have a, a guy who was my mentor who said, Ken, good management is about nagging, plenty of nagging, keeping at people, keeping them on the right path. And I think when you have a charity, people have got other things to do with their lives. So it's important that we try to get them focused around the support they need to give us in variety. So if they're a director on the board, um, I also chair uh, and I'm deputy chair of, we have regional boards for variety as well. So I'm chairman of one which is over in Central Asia and the Middle East. I'm deputy chair of the Asia Pacific one as well. And so that the people who are on those councils, those regional councils are also active and, and following through. In setting up these new branches, particularly the ones in Asia and over in Central Asia, is, is the need to keep working with people and helping them because they've never worked with Variety before. They don't know how our charity operates. What we do with each one is we provide a sister branch for them. So that, for example, in, in Hong Kong, um, the sister branch, or tent as we call them, is Victoria. Um, in Sri Lanka, the sister tent is New South Wales. So that gives the opportunity, not having to reinvent the wheel in fundraising, that you've got another organisation sitting with you helping. And one of the important things I do is to try to coordinate that. So my telephone bills are very high. My expense, uh, because I do all of this voluntarily, uh, my expense bills, my airline fare bills and my hotel bills internationally are very high. But that's part of what I'm prepared to do to make a difference for kids in real need. That's amazing. So all your work is voluntary. So there's obviously a very strong dedication that you have towards helping children. Um, from where do you draw this dedication? Why do you pursue this? I'm not sure I know why. Uh, I suppose you could say, well, I've had a, a long and, and perhaps successful career in business and in government, and I do want to give back. Um, kids are very special. We all, we all love kids and I've chaired um, a university foundation, I chaired the Victoria University Foundation for a number of years. I've got to tell you what, it's a lot easier to raise money for kids than it is for universities where there is a general perception that universities here in Australia are a government responsibility. Mm. But when, when, I think it's one of those things you get sucked into the vortex. When you start the process and you start to make some just hand over some grants that we raise funds for. And one of my favourite is a thing we call a Delta Talker. It's a bit like a, a, an iPad mini. And, and we give that to children, and in a particular case I, I can think of as a little boy, about seven years old, had no use of his hands or his arms. He was unable to speak. And we gave he and his family one of these, and he was able to use a pencil in his mouth to key, hit the keyboard to then be able to create a message and the machine would then talk for him. Wow. Now, that not only made a huge difference to his life, but for his siblings and his mum and dad. Imagine having a kid seven years old as mm. being a mum yeah. and never being able to communicate in words with your child. Mm. This was the first, and to see the look on the back, everyone's got tears, I got tears, everyone's got yeah. tears. And it really starts to get to you after a while that maybe maybe I can make a difference. Maybe I can help a lot more kids. I think that's the thing that drives me today, that you know, my kids are very well off and my grandchildren are well off. But it is interesting to see that one of my grandchildren um, had saved up all of his money for two years, birthdays and Christmases and everything, and he came to me and said, 
I'd like you to give this money to a particular project we were working on in Africa so that the kids there could have a playground. And I think it was about $250, and it came out of the blue to me. Blew me it just blew me away. And I think, well, maybe there is some example setting going on here as well, and he's picked that up and wanted to run with it. But it's, I think it's exciting. It, it's not like being in dull board meetings all your life. It's about getting out and making a difference for kids in real need. And that's what's really important. It's about equality, which is key in your work. What are some things done by Variety and yourself to help combat inequality among children? Yeah, well, it's, it's hard for us to believe that today, that when I first started work as a 16-year-old, for, for women who were working in the public service, um, when they got married, they had to resign. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. They had to resign. They could come back as a temporary employee, but they were forced to resign uh, for all sorts of reasons, I suppose, not, not the least of which is maternity leave wasn't invented yeah. then, but I guess they didn't want to carry the cost. I'm so but glad I, that's changed now. Things have changed so dramatically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we talk about programs like He for She, which we're doing a bit of work on later on here at the Graduate mm -hmm. Union, but to me, I just take it for granted now that everybody is equal. Uh, they're equal whether they're male or they're female. They're equal whether they're from... They have a family background from another country. Um, you know, after all, my family came here in 1850, but they came from another country. They came from Ireland, right. and you know, I'm I'm a migrant to this country as well. And to me, everybody is equal. But but I just don't think that's got through society to the levels that I would have hoped it has so far. And it's interesting to note that in in the legal profession, um, it's been found that while women account for more than half of all law graduates today, they account for just 20% of the membership of the, in New South Wales, of the New South Wales Bar, and just 9% of senior counsel in New South Wales. What do you feel when you hear those statistics? I'm, I, must, I must say, I'm gobsmacked. Yeah. You know, how, how can that be? Mm. There can be all sorts of reasons why women maybe don't become senior counsel, the number of volume because of family interests and, and bring up a family and whatever, but the figures have got to be higher than that. And I think that you, I'm involved uh, at Victoria Police um, on the Corporate Advisory Board and, and we're in the process now of making that board um, certainly more women than men on that board because, not because women should be on the board, but because we've picked some outstanding people, mm. men and women, who are on that board. And it's interesting, when I look back on my career, every major role I've had, my successor has always been a woman. Yes. And that, and there'd never been, in any case, any of those situations, there'd never been a woman uh, in any of those roles before. And yet, to me, I was actually looking for the best person to do the job. Yeah. And... Uh, and it, it happened to be a woman. But again, I think the issue about gender balance, we're moving forward on corporate boards, we're going, and government boards uh, here in Victoria. The government has a bit of a policy to move to 50-50 on some boards. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's great, providing we're getting the really right people in the roles. But today, um, you know, I've, I guess I've lived and breathed the equality move for perhaps the last 45 years. And to me, it just seems like natural. Uh, and yet you see something about that, the Law Institute in New South Wales and you think, wow, 
We've still got a long way to go. We do indeed. And I think every one of us, uh, every one of us can do more Absolutely. to help that situation, can do a lot more. And it's also not just about gender equality for the sake of gender equality, it's about respect as well. Mm. And that's a really important thing. I think just going back through the issues we've talked about, sure. in my life, we as kids, it was very much respect. Respect for your parents and for your family, but also for other people, the way in which you speak to other people uh, and, and for law and order. And, you know, today with my involvement with police, you know, you see how different it can be today. In some cases, some kids have no respect for law and order, none, and they don't seem to care. Uh, and, and also as well, you don't see, you see a lot of respect in the community, but you don't see as much as you should, I think, and we've still got a fair way to go. And I think collectively, it's, it's our joint responsibility to do more in that area. Absolutely. And you talked about the He For She campaign that we will run at Graduate Health. So obviously gender equality, as, as you've been just talking about, is, is an area that's very close to your heart. Um, in your recent note to residents um, at Graduate House, you wrote that gender equality is not just a women's issue, it's a human rights issue that benefits any, everyone. Can you elaborate a little bit about your thinking? Yeah, as, as I said, I think that the whole issue about equality is, of course, it's also about male equality as well in some particular areas, but it's about equality, and, and fundamentally to me, that's about respect. We respect one another as human beings, and that's a basic principle of, of human rights, I think. And, and human rights should be about full equality. And we're fortunate here in Australia that we've got a lot further than a lot of other places have gone mm -hmm. on the issue of equality. But I think that um, young, young people today are fortunate because they have grown up in an environment. If they go to kindergarten, if it's here in Australia, they go to kindergarten, it's all about equality. At primary school, it's all about equality. Um, and, and But it's like everything else. I talked before about man the principles of management, about management by nagging. Mm. The same thing applies to uh, charitable organisations. The same thing applies to issues like occupational health and safety in organisations. But it also, it also applies to those areas of equality where people do need to be reminded. And one day, one day, I'm not sure how long it's going to take, people look back on this like I do on the poor women who had to resign when they got married in the public service. People look back on these discussions we're having now, I'm sure, and say, well, imagine having to talk about it. Why didn't people just do it? Yeah. yeah just do it. That's, that's a, exactly right. That's the question. So from all your experience and everything that you've done, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned? I think in I think the most one of the most important ingredients to success in life today is communication. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who you are and what you do, if you're not a good communicator, you're not going to be successful in a work environment. You're not going to be successful in a personal environment and you're not going to be successful in a social environment. Let's just take, and in fact I've been driving for all university courses to have a significant communication subject in at various levels during the course. It doesn't matter who you are. I mean, if you're a salesman, of course it's important. Mm. But just think about people who are, who are physicians, people whose job it is to assess what's wrong with a person. Mm. 
You're not going to get the right answer unless there is a good line of communication between the two. It's got to be a two-way thing. If you're an engineer or an architect or a builder, unless you can communicate, you're not going to be able to do your job properly. Even if you're a researcher stuck away in a building somewhere doing research work, unless you can communicate the value of what you're doing, you will never be able to get a research grant. You will not be able to get continuous funding. In your personal lives, I just think, again, communication is so important. It's interesting when I, I get involved in doing um, conciliation and arbitration uh, cases, and it's interesting how often it's just the, the, the problem is actually just a breakdown in communication between people. We see it in work environments. We see issues about workplace harassment and workplace bullying. So often that's about a lack of communication between the supervisor and the person being supervised on what the expectations of both parties are and the process of reviewing that as well. So communication, number one. In terms of attitude, persistence, persistence and persistence uh, are the next three things I see as important. Keep at it. Don't give up. The world is full of people who will say, no, you can't do it. Don't let them stop you. Go find a way you can do it. And even ask them, well, you've told me I can't do it. Tell, tell me how I could do it. Tell me how I can do it. And then you'll get another negative. And finally, the most important thing is, don't clutter your head and your thinking with negative thoughts. Get rid of them. Get rid of them as quick as you can. Start thinking about the positive things. Try and turn negatives into positives on an ongoing basis. Be the sort of person who your peer group will say, wow, that person's positive. It doesn't mean that you don't take the knocks with the negative, sure, but try and get them out of the way quickly and store them somewhere in the brain where they get a bit locked up and you might, you might perhaps use them for experience base. But other than that, make, make the rest of your life, make it all positive. It's easy to do and you'll be a lot happier in your lifestyle. That's just beautiful advice, Kenneth. You obviously have so much advice to share with everyone. What words of advice would you give to those entering life in the workforce and, and taking their next steps? Okay, so I think that those who are, who are coming through with an academic background, they've been, you've been given tremendous training and skills which do enable you to move into certain areas of occupation. But the most important, the biggest mistake you can make is to think you know everything. Because the work environment that you move into, any work environment you move into, will be, unless you've had work experience in that environment, will be novel. It will be new and it will mean that you're going to have to learn, still learn a lot of things about the way things are processed, the way things are done. And it's really important to be able to listen mm -hmm. and not to come in and say, well, I've got you know a master's in this or I've got a PhD in this mm -hmm. so I know everything about the reality is, in a work environment, things can be very different from what the from an academic environment. It's different in a whole lot of ways. It's different about knowledge. It's different about the environment that you're working in. It's different in terms of the work uh, environments and work habits you develop. You know, all of us when we study tend to spend late at night cramming and and doing um, learning as part of our learning process, doing assignments. In a work environment, you're expected to work hard during the day 
sometimes as well as at night. Yeah. But so it's a different environment to work in. It's a matter of adjusting. So it's an adjustment process, I think, yeah. not to be frightened of, but one to treat it as another learning experience and to listen and to communicate. Excellent. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to be the very first interviewee for the Graduate House podcast. We're very honoured to have you as president and we look forward to the future with you. Thank it, you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Graduate House podcast. Remember to check graduatehouse.com.au every month for new podcasts.